Happy International Podcast Day. Let's uh, let's speed through this one so I can get a better eye. Body Valentine song stick in my head, so. Is it this one? No. Great band. Yeah, alright. I, I think I have uh, words with you about you. I've, I've discovered I've discovered the secret to you. Hmm. You don't like anything. That's not true at all. I think it is. All right, great. So, um, what's this podcast? Uh, this podcast is Project A Plus Part Two, Season Two. The Part Two denotes Season Two, while sticking to the naming convention of the film franchise we're named after. Yes. Uh, what's what's my name? Your name is Hunter Biden. And what's your name? I'm Hugh Sanders. <laughs> so I'm the I'm the centrist in this formulation. No, you're the corrupt son of the centrist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's not true to our political voice, bud. You think you're more extreme left than me, do you? I do. Why? Um, I just can't imagine you ever killing someone. <laughs> What's that got to do with the extreme left? I just can't imagine you ever uh, killing someone for the cause. But couldn't I be so extreme left that I'm also a pacifist? No, because then you're you're going more towards the center. Pacifism only aids the, the ruling class, you. Does it? Yeah. Sorry, buddy. Anyway. Uh, so, me, Hunter, you, Hugh, podcast. Project A+, season two. What movies are we doing on today's show? What? Are you, like, taping together a, a collage or something? What do you mean? From bits of magazines and newspapers? Uh, no. Well, good. Because nor am I, because I'm an audio professional. So, what movies are we doing on today's podcast? We'll be looking at Ida Lupino's 1953 noir classic, The Hitchhiker. And then we will be continuing our series on Jafar Panahi... As part of our greater series on uh, Iranian cinema, by looking at Offside from some year, and and this is not a film from a bit later. Is there some shitty segue to do before we do um, the films, or can we get right to it? Are you forgetting our fucking segments? Yeah, man. You piece of uh, trash. I'm starting a season two off with a bang, baby. Now, now it's time for um, fucking whatever. Reels on meals. No, isn't that, isn't that come after the... For fuck's sake. We've done this like ten times with these segments. Okay, Reels on Reels. Reels on Meals. Reels on Meals on Reels on Meals on Reels. Reels on Meals on Reels on Meals on Reels. Did you have to say anything that you always eat? 
I did not. Wow, holy shit. So, and I only did it for this fucking segment. Wow. I felt like having toast, which is my normal breakfast. <sighs> Vegemite toast is perfect, and I would happily have that every day of my life, pretty much. But instead, instead what I did is I bought a packet of mince pies. Mm. Seasonal mince pies. Seasonal Christmas mince pies. Isn't it a bit early for that? Well, that's our supermarket starts stocking them up here as early as September. Because, first of all, we don't have as big a Halloween as you do, obviously. Nor do we have a Thanksgiving. So essentially, you can really start the Christmas celebrations as early as you like, from a retail perspective. Pretty early in September, maybe even before mid-September, I started to see these Christmas items pop up. And, uh, because I'm cheap, I stumped for the, the $2 home brand of this particular supermarket and it advertised the fact that it was a new recipe. The last recipe was, was tolerable. I did eat that quite a lot during the last Christmas season, but they have updated the recipe and I'm here to report that it is an improvement. The pastry has more structural integrity, um, than their last effort. Uh, it still feels, it's not quite the right pastry texture. It feels cheap, obviously, because it costs $2 for six of them. But the, the, the filling is an improvement, and it has, has more of a spice kick, which I appreciated. It's as good as any mince pie I've, I've had, excepting my favorite brand, which is Mr. Kipling, which is a British brand, which, which I'll take over any prestige bakery trash mince pie so that's what i had for breakfast one of those so two dollars for six that accounts for six breakfasts i don't know how much that equates to per breakfast but it's not very much so it's good value for money for me that was my breakfast with the usual cup of coffee what did you have my friend um well i had three meals today one of which i'm not going to talk about right now so i'm going to save it for later segment. Wow. You believe that? Um, so for breakfast this morning I had a some coffee that I made last night so it was cold coffee and some Rice Krispies. Not Rice Krispies uh, Rice Krispies though. Uh, Trader Joe's brand Rice Krispies. Hmm. And uh, I like some Rice Krispies. What do you think about Rice Krispies? We had this discussion before. Yeah didn't we? Um, and we call them rice bubbles here. I, this is not something that I've heard before. And the way rice bubbles are marketed in Australia, I'm not sure if it's similar with Rice Krispies or it's a derivative of Rice Krispies, is that there are these three little characters called Snap, Crackle, and Pop. Yeah, it's the same thing. Who, what's the parent company? Kellogg. Yeah, it's Kellogg's. It's the same. There we go. A go-to breakfast cereal for me. Do you just have it plain? Yep. I don't like milk in my cereal. What the fuck? I didn't mean that. <laughs> you eat dry rice krispies? We, we've definitely talked about my my cereal preferences on this podcast before. I didn't realize that was like what you always did. Yeah, I never eat. I remember having that discussion. But I didn't realize like every morning you have dry no, cereal. not every morning, but uh, I never eat cereal with milk. When you have cereal, it's always dry. It's always dry. Uh, I think milk and cereal is gross. It becomes really soggy and gross. Like if you leave it too long, there's a window. 
And there's a ratio as well. Yeah, and I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't want to deal with this ratio. I want to take my fucking time and eat my cereal on my own time. Okay, and also, Rice Krispies, the aforementioned characters that are marketed on the box, Snap, Crackle, and Pop, they don't exist if you don't put milk in it. I don't care. Do, are they flavored? Because, like, they, they pretty much have no flavor here. Yeah, they taste like, I don't know. They taste like Rice Krispies. They just taste like grain, right? They don't pretty taste. They're, they're not sweetened or anything. They're a little. They're a little sweet. I'm pretty sure they're not sweetened at all here, from memory when I was growing up. I live in a disgusting country. That's true. Moving on, um, for lunch I had uh, a baked potato, mm. uh, and some peppers, and that was it. A baked potato and some peppers. Yeah, like bell peppers. Yeah, just baby, uncooked. Bell peppers. Hmm. That was it. And then for dinner, I had something secret. Okay. So moving on, uh, let's go to our main feature, um, the hitchhiker. Fishing is my favorite thing to do. I love vacation fish. Buddy, I'm so glad that you came to this what is the hitchhiker view and why did we watch it? What are you doing? I'm not doing anything. <sighs> Come on. We'll be quicker with less ambient noise, I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, we'll be quicker if you just ignore it and start talking about what the movie No, because it, 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 really, it really screws everything up. Sometimes I have to cut out whole bits of what you say because of your ambient noise. Well, then I just don't talk at all. How's <laughs> <laughs> that sound? You can stop rustling things when you speak. Like, that's okay. I'm not rustling anything. I don't know what you're doing. But anyway, <laughs> what is the hitchhiker? What is the hitchhiker? Yeah, tell me. Some of your best material could end up on the cutting room floor. You realize? <laughs> this episode is not going to be my best material. So before we talk about the hitchhiker, maybe we should talk about who Ida Lupino is. Okay. Who's Ida Lupino? Uh, she's a filmmaker... She directed movies. She was originally an actress. Yep. She was associated with Howard Hughes. As were you, if I'm memory served. But later in her career, um, she founded a production company, Filmmakers Inc., with her then-husband, Collier Young. He was a co-writer on The Hitchhiker. And they made a number of what were called issues pictures. And on the heels of those films, Lupino made The Hitchhiker in 1953. Uh-huh. The title card tells us that it's inspired by true events. Mm, I'm sure. It's about an evil hitchhiker. As they all are. Who has been uh, on a crime spree for a while. He hitches rides, and then when he no longer has any use for the drivers or passengers, he murders them. Mm. And that's, that's the setup for the story. And then we follow uh, one particular instance in which he, he hitchhikes a ride from these two men on their way, supposedly, to some sort of fishing trip, but they're actually going to Mexico. And uh, he basically holds them at gunpoint. So they're driving across the country down in Mexico, eluding the authorities. And, uh, you know, that's the story. So it's a, it's a kind of taut noir thriller that recalls some of the the poverty road pictures of the time especially detour which we featured on the podcast previously so like detour 
The Hitchhiker distills the genre to its essence across its brief 17-minute running time, even while it trades the dark claustrophobia of the city for the bright expanses of the open road. Mm. Hunter So, what did you make of this little picture? Uh, I liked it. What did you think of it? Thank you for sharing your thoughts on this this film. Uh, I liked it also. And now I'm not going to say anything else. What did you like about it? I liked that it was 70 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think? What did you like about it? <laughs> Why are you badgering me? I'm tired, you. I mean, I liked that it was 70 minutes also, don't get me wrong. It's definitely a good feature of this film. I just like how strange of a film it is. I'm not going to elaborate on that. It does have some strange, uh, almost comically absurd touches that I really appreciated. The evil hitchhiker, what's his name, Myers? Yes, Emmett Myers. Emmett Myers. Uh, he's got a paralyzed right eye. Yes. That, uh, that can't close. Yeah. So at one point um, when they're camping for the night, the way that he keeps uh, the two guys, Collins and Bowen, in check is by saying, you'll never know if I'm awake or asleep because one of my eyes can't close. So he sits there watching them, and they're both bound up in blankets, and they kind of look like human cigars. Yeah. <laughs> and, these kind of, and the way that Lupino has framed the shot with him, like, sort of uh, sitting by a tree looking down on them, I, I enjoyed that. I like how uh, weirdly homoerotic this film is. In what way? Well, for for one, there's not there's not a single except for a brief shot of a of a wife of a Mexican motorist. There's not a single woman in this film at all. And the sort of opening sequence where these two men who supposedly are going on a fishing trip but actually seem to be getting away from their wives and child in order to at first it's like they're going to go to uh, have sex with a hooker, <laughs> but uh, because uh, one of the men is. It's too sleepy, which I read as a either, uh, you know, you can either read it as a sign of his uh, inherent virtue or that he's impotent. <laughs> um, sort of decide to go off on their own on a quote-unquote fishy trip. Sort of suggests a deferred sexuality. And indeed, you can uh, sort of read their, um, the fact that they're being harried by this outlaw uh, as like a, you know, resurfacing of uh, homosexual desire in a way. Hmm. Um, I thought that was a very interesting sort of twist to add to the noir genre. <laughs> Which is typically a translation of sort of a, uh, you know, very uh, heteronormative um, masculine desires and fears on film. You know, definitely in some uh, noir films, it's, it functions as a critique of sort of masculine desires. And I think this one sort of also has its moments of critiquing masculinity. I think what is what is particularly notable is, is like the complete absence of uh, what, you, what I guess you'd call masculine acts of heroism. Yes. I feel like a key moment in this film is the ending where one of the main characters, uh, the more uh, down-to-earth, uh, you know, salt-of-the-earth type, basically the villain has been taken into custody by the Mexican police and he just sort of starts beating him in this like kind of disturbing sequence where, I don't know, this this act which is you know very masculine, very sort of aggressive, um, violent action like just becomes pathetic and sort of almost disgusting in a way. 
Yeah, because it's notable that the only act of violence they can manage against their tormentor is when he's restrained in handcuffs and has has no recourse to fight back. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. That was kind of the the dominant theme of the film. And and the way Emmett Myers mocks both the men for being soft and incapable of leaving the other behind in order to have a better chance of escaping. And That sort of um, homosexual bond is, is valorized in this film. Hmm. Specifically, you know, we talk. There's, there's two protagonists in this film, but the moral code it really like sort of adheres to is the more passive of the two, Collins, who you know is is very much you know advocates to not try to violently overthrow this man, and his his path it turns out to be the one that leads them to success. You know. Yeah, essentially, their decision to restrain themselves and stay together. Yeah kind of allows them to survive long enough for Myers to be apprehended, even if they yeah. didn't really have anything that much to do with the success of that. I also like that even the final confrontation with police is stripped of any heroism. The arrest is pretty matter-of-fact, um, and it's really only Myers reacting against the attempts to arrest him or when he's actually handcuffed. Yeah, uh, It's really only him who's supplying any dramatic action. Um, and it sort of makes that dramatic action seem... Like, again, like, pathetic and, uh, mm. like, defangs it to a large degree. The sort of competing values is, is interesting, the way Lupino pits what Myers represents against what these ordinary kind of family men represent. Um, and there's that moment where I think it's Collins has, has an outburst on the beach and tells Myers that he'd be nothing without his gun. Yeah. And the implication is that the men, even though they're flawed and ordinary... They have connections to the world. They have wives and children and to each other to some extent. Whereas Myers is just this violent individualism and he's full of mistrust for everyone else. This is really a a communist movie if you get down to it. I thought it was also interesting on on a side note, the portrayal of Mexicans was surprisingly non-derogatory for the time. Yeah. I I assumed, I think as as you did, that it would... uh, dip into uh, a typical like Hollywood portrayal of uh, non-Anglo-Saxons and that it would just be racist and bigoted. But yeah, I mean, it makes it makes Myers kind of a racist as well and, and valorizes uh, Collins' fluency in, in uh, Spanish. So Yeah, that's true as well, which I thought was interesting. Um, and I also like that some scenes take place entirely in Spanish without subtitles. Yeah, I also thought that was an interesting choice. And it, because it's just evidently clear what's going on, you don't need the subtitles. But it was like a matter-of-fact treatment of a different culture that is kind of rare in American movies of, of that time. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, I, not to get off on another track, but I think the way that this, this film sort of works as a genre mismatch is, uh, mishmash is interesting as well. And that it, it, it you know, we talk, it is primarily a noir film but the setting and sort of the um i don't know some other small details sort of paint this as like a quasi western as well and you know i don't i don't know there's just something about the um way that the costuming is like kind of like deliberately like you know collins and the other one bowen are dressed in like sort of lighter colors and myers is dressed in like sort of a dark dark coat see very sort of um indebted to the typical um costume designations of, of Western films. But there's also a, a sort of interesting incorporation of almost like a uh, Fritz Longian interest in procedural like uh, crime solving as well, which I thought was interesting. There's several cutaways just to um, characters who go pretty much unnamed, who are just agents of 
uh, the FBI and um, some Mexican authority who like you know set up a dragnet and and uh, sort of scheme against the the character. I, I thought the three main performances were all pretty good. Um, I especially liked the guys who played the two men, uh, Edmund O'Brien and Frank Lovejoy. Yeah, I thought they were they they were very solid. <laughs> Because they they have to spend a lot of the film basically silently enduring yeah. Myers and his directives and his um, torture to some degree as well, even though like it's it's in the context of a very different style of acting than we're used to these days. There was I think a lot of subtlety in their performance. Yeah, and I enjoy um, the guy who plays Myers as well. Hmm. Yeah, he's good too. He's very like, sort of um, I don't know. You know, he touches over the topness, but it fits the the characters written. Yeah, you like that there's no real, like, attempt to humanize him either. And he almost comes off as, like, a weird sort of supernatural force. I don't know, there's, like, this, there's some sense in the opening of the film where the character sort of, the, the two big characters sort of bring, you know, him on themselves to an extent. Hmm. Because <laughs> it's that, you know, the weird sequence of, like, almost sexual impropriety. And then it's immediately followed up them getting abducted, you know? And there's also kind of a, a, a class reading to it, too, because... They're middle-class, comfortable, ordinary Americans. And um, Myers pointedly says that he's never had what they've had, and that's why he's stronger than them, because he's mistrustful of the world, and, you know, he's had to struggle to get by. Yeah, yeah. So I'm on Myers' side, is what I'm saying. <laughs> going to make my own Indian, which just cuts the footage at the beginning where he's, like, murdering those people, and, and at the end. <laughs> I liked how those sequences are filmed too even if they were pretty like um, you could tell like sort of the heavy hand of the production code even if it didn't uh, even if it was like a self-editing you know mm. yeah the, yeah. The, the early sequences where we were first introduced to Myers basically as these sinister legs yeah but it sort of reinforces the idea that he's a a, a force rather than an individualized like person too and one of the murders, you just you basically just see the car door open, you hear the gunshot, and you see a purse fall on the ground. Yeah. But that was really effective. It seems it's like a really simple technique, but it but it worked. Yeah. Yeah, Lupino uses great, very stylized camera work throughout the film. It has a really nice sense of pacing and, and tension, I think. Yeah, for sure. It's only seventy minutes too, which is uh, always a plus. Well, I uh, think that was a pretty tidy little conversation about the Hitchhiker. Tidy, just like the film itself. So, um, what do we have uh, next on the docket? Is it pizza time? It's pizza time. Pass a piece of pizza, baby. I want some pizza. Lay me out a slice. Fetch a felon feature for me. It's a pizza story. Dig them fights. So, uh, do you have any pizza-related things to talk about? I do have two pizza-related things to talk about. Uh, go for it. I mean, I guess they're not really topics so much oh. as just me recounting the pizza I've eaten since the previous episode, but whatever. So, my brother and his partner um, are going on holiday to Japan. Actually, one of my friends is uh, in holiday in Japan right now. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll hook them up. <laughs> they can all fuck. Yeah, they'll, they'll do a key party. So I went to my parents' house to farewell them, and my my dad made his homemade pizza. This was good pizza, and it, it's it's probably my favorite pizza to eat cold, because as, as we talked about last time, 
there are some instances where you may need to reheat a pizza. Go back to that episode if you want to hear my directions. You got some hot uh, pizza reheating tips. But there are some pizzas that are just really good and they work really well cold. And I particularly like his pizza cold. So I got to take some leftover pizza home and I ate that for dinner. Then last night, only last night, I made my signature approximation of New York pizza. Mm-hmm. How'd that turn out? And it was uh, pretty good. I'm going to make it again tonight. Mm. And then the next night. Because I have to buy essentially enough for three in order to have one. So I may as well have it three nights in a row. What, what did you have pizza-wise? Well, Hugh, literally two hours ago, I grabbed a pizza out of the, oven, out of the freezer, stuck it in the oven, and ate it. Wow. It was uh, not that good, to be honest. You know, oftentimes, I like the frozen pizzas that I get. This one I wasn't so fond of. Was it a different style or a different brand? Yeah, it was a different style and a different brand. Because typically, I like to go with Newman's own pizzas. Those are pretty good. But this is a Trader Joe's pizza, and it was only okay. But I ate it anyway. Trader Joe's let you down, usually so reliable. More like Trader Joe's. Oh, by the way, did you hear that um, your uh, prime minister has been embroiled in the uh, latest Trump scandal? What, in the Ukraine thing? Yeah. No, I did not. And I've been following the, I've been following the Trump thing pretty closely, to be honest. So. Uh, Australia, government agreed to help Trump investigate your inquiry's origin. So, there you go. Wow. <laughs> There's a picture of ScoMo with uh, Trump, Trump, Trump daddy. <laughs> Maybe it'll bring down both governments. <laughs> you have to remember that the Russian thing started with an Australian minister or ex-minister in London. I forgot who he met with, but some idiot was talking to him about it, and then he reported it to the FBI. Uh, all right. So next next time, next what's the next segment on this show? Project time. It's project time. Project time. It's project time. Project time, it's project time. Project time, it's project time. Project Time, Iranian Cinema, Jafar Panahi, Offside. I feel like his name, we've been mispronouncing his name. Yeah, because you do hear it pronounced in This Is Not A Film a couple of times. Yeah, but I couldn't really discern what it was pronounced as exactly. I know that we're both wrong, that's all I can say. (laughs) Anyway, so Offside, what is Offside, Hugh? It's about a group of women trying to get into a football stadium to watch a qualifying match... Uh, for the 2006 World Cup mm. between Iran and Bahrain. Bahrain? 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 That's what I would say, but I don't know. Okay. And it follows their attempts to get into this stadium, um, but they're very quickly apprehended by um, soldiers. Not them. So over the course of the film, we get to know both the women and the soldiers. What did you think of this? 
I think there's some parts of this film that I really liked. I thought were really admirable and really well made. And, you know, as a political statement, hard to argue against it. But I did find it a little bit tedious, if I'm being honest, true to myself. Uh, Hugh, what do, you, what, do you, what do you think about the, the filmmaking style known as neorealism? Offside represents maybe a different sort of case in that it's not necessarily in conception setting out to be a neorealist film. No, not necessarily. Or in, at least no more so than some of Panahi's previous films. Uh, uh, yes, but I think, I think uh, stylistically this film... Uh, adheres more to yes, but I think that's that's as a result of its sort of guerrilla filmmaking methods, right? It's extremely low budget. The the budget is listed as like two grand or something like that. Mm. Clearly shot at an actual football stadium during the actual match, perhaps. Mm. The style seemed to be somewhat necessitated by the constraints of sure. actually getting this done on that budget in this environment. But I, I do think there are actual moments that work well visually by virtue of the setting. I agree. And there's a really striking sequence set in, uh, like, the men's bathroom. Yeah, that is definitely one of the highlights of the film. Yeah, the soldier takes one of the women to the men's bathroom and tries to stop, uh, like, casual male football fans from getting into the bathroom while she's using it. Yeah. Because, just to be clear, the, I don't know if you, we adequately set this up, but women are not allowed to go to football matches in Iran. Yes. Uh, and there are no, as a result, there are no women's uh, toilets. So, yeah, I guess we should have set up the fact that the women are dressed as boys to get into the stadium. Yes. And the film sort of paints this as a, a fairly typical uh, practice among women. But I think it's interesting. Like, it, it puts a spotlight on injustice like some of his previous films have, and that's always been a component of his films. But it's significantly lighter in tone than, for example, The Circle. Yeah, the stakes aren't quite as high, except for in some specific moments. No, and I don't think it's intended to be that dark or anything. I think it's the sort of film that would play well at international festivals, as I I think this actually did. did. Yeah. It won The Silver Bear, which I think is referenced, and this is not a film. It's one of those foreign films that are easy to export. Yeah, and that's why I kind of also had some... I honestly wish this film was a little darker, to be, to be frank. Well, I, I personally don't mean to say that to slight the film. Yeah, I know. I do think it's charming, and even at points, moving. Yeah, I agree. But it did feel slightly slight, if I may. Yeah, and I did, I did like the way it ended. Yeah, I thought that. I think like the ending sequence is probably the the most compelling like footage that's that's in this film mm. for me. Because it sort of contrasts this, like, ecstasy of winning at football and, and pairs it with, like, you know, this, this sequence of escape. Um, and it's just filled with, like, possibility. And it, and it, has, it has, like, a really hopeful uh, yet realistic sort of momentum to it. And I just think that the way he films, like, the crowds and, you know, jubilance that's being felt all across Iran and by these women and by these soldiers all at the same time. It's just really compelling and, and well done. Well, at the same time, we kind of know that it's not necessarily going to be a happy conclusion immediately after that. No. It's just, a, it's just this moment of release. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's almost everyone being temporarily liberated from the constraints that society otherwise places on them because the soldiers kind of 
relax across the course of the film. Yeah. And are more permissive towards what's going on. It continues um, something we talked about in, in the context of uh, his previous films in the last episode, in that it's not looking to have a character representing the... No, the ills of society. Yeah, the evil ills of society personified in one person. No. The soldiers here are treated with humanity and warmth. Yeah. And actually, to be honest, they're explored more than the women are. Yeah. Which I think is also kind of a... a... Yeah, that was the one thing that stood out to me, is that, yeah, it seemed that the film cared more about the soldiers' characters than it did some of the female characters who kind of recede. So we, we get into this film from the perspective of uh, one woman who's trying to get in. There's actually a really great early sequence. Well, the film starts with, uh, actually with the perspective of a man, right? That's true, that's true. But yeah, for, for a lot of the early scenes... Yeah, the, the, the sequence that really gets you into the main like sort of action in the film. Uh, it, yeah, it follows this woman as she tries to sneak into the stadium. And I, I do enjoy sort of the the sort of process-based uh, filmmaking that's, that goes on here, you know? Mm. Where it very much is like, I don't know, it's it's interesting to see, and I wonder how, like, you know, truthful it is to the actual experience of women trying to sneak in, you know, having, you know, to be, like, ripped off by ticket scalpers and being forced to, like, pay money. But I, I feel like the, the part of this film that I thought was kind of, like, I don't know, like, unsuccessful is when they, when they do reach this sort of enclosure that has been built to get these film female fans, the sort of repetitive sequences that are surrounding that I just felt kind of, I don't know. It just had a little, like, listless to me. I agree with you, actually. I think that is the weakest part of the film. It felt a bit stretched out. Like, yeah. you got the point of what was going I mean, on. I, I think there are some good parts of it. Like, I really like the performance by, like, the woman who, like, dressed up. And I, I like the different sort of, like, catalog uh, cataloging of the different, like, you know, personalities of these women and the ways that they have snuck in, too. I really enjoyed the performance by that one woman who, like, wore a soldier's uniform. Yeah, me too. But that, I think the, the thing that would have made this sequence work better is if we did get more time with the women and their characters. That's true. And maybe if there had been fewer of them. But, I mean, I guess, I guess he's trying to, like, you know, show how widespread and, like, fervent this belief is among women. So, hmm. I don't know. And I, do, I, do think, I do think the performances of the women go work to some degree to individualize them, too. Yeah, I think they're all very good. Yeah, I, I agree. Some of the soldiers were a bit weak in spots, yeah. but I think all the women were very good. Yeah, I think I think like the main soldier guy was pretty all right, but yeah, the yeah, and the guy who, like escort, escorts the one woman to the bathroom is also pretty good, but the other ones I thought were pretty whatever. Yeah, I, I think I liked it overall. Um, it did have some some good sequences, yeah. and I liked the way it ended. I just wasn't. Uh, that enamored with all of it, but yeah, this is like it was like solid. It's funny to me. This is probably like the least memorable of his features that we've watched. Hmm. Um. So it's it's it, it, it's almost ironic. I mean, obviously, it's like pretty um, politically aggressive, you know. But um, it's 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 almost ironic that this is the film of his that got like him uh, slapped with like a prison sentence and. And a ban on uh, making films. It definitely feels like a conscious effort to reach an audience. Yeah. In a way that I, you didn't necessarily feel in some of his earlier films. Yeah. I feel like especially the last two of his that we watched, which both are pretty like dark films that aren't necessarily that inviting as well. No. This is not a song. expression of my art.
Anyway, so we have one more film to talk about. Uh, it's, this is not a film. Also, we don't have one more film to talk about then. What do you mean? I just shut up. Because it's not a film. What's, what's this movie about? I've explained the last two movies. You explain this movie. I don't want to. I'm tired. I don't care. I'm tired. What's this? It's not a film. You've seen it twice, motherfucker. So. I've seen it three times, motherfucker. Yeah, so tell us all about it then. So, uh, Hugh, uh, after the release of Offside... Um, yeah, what happened? Panahi was arrested and was sent to jail and was basically issued a uh, 20-year ban on um, making movies um, and being sort of a creative type. He responded to this challenge of not making movies by, you guessed it, making a movie. This film was smuggled out of Iran in a flash drive. I think that was baked into a cake, if my memory is. Is it correctly? Was it really in a cake? Wow, that's awesome. I think so. I could be wrong with that. Yep. It was smuggled out of, a, out of Iran in a USB thumb drive that had been hidden inside of a cake. Um, I smuggled it to Cannes, where it premiered. Um, and this film is sort of, uh, you know, it's not much to it. He putters around his apartment, talks about the film that he would have made if, if the government had abandoned him for making films constructs some scenes of it um, and engages in dialogue with a fellow filmmaker um, and also a random sort of couple random passerbys. He talks to his wife and his son and also his lawyer on the phone. He anxiously awaits the uh, verdict of an appeal court um, and sort of films the whole process. And we should say, you mentioned that he talks to a fellow filmmaker, but it is also credited. Yes. This is a film that, that is that filmmaker co-directed. Uh, his name is uh, Mojitab uh, Mirat Mirtab Matamazb. Mirtamaz, sure. What did you think of it? Well, okay, going in and during the first couple of scenes of the film, mm. I did wonder if this film would rely too much on the context of its creation and not necessarily stand on its own. Mm. Like, something that's interesting and commendable given the circumstances, but maybe not mm. wholly satisfying as a film. Mm-hmm. And yet I did find it satisfying as a film. Mm. Interesting. Even though it's apparently not a film, which is weird. Um, it's I'm like going to fucking go it, to Australia and punch you in the stomach. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the, the uber example of the impulse towards self-reflexivity. Yeah of a lot of the uh, Iranian cinema, or this particular movement of Iranian cinema, we should say. Yeah. Including such scenes uh, as Panahi himself criticising earlier scenes that he's just shot that we've seen in this movie, uh, as well as discussing clips from his earlier films, such as The Circle and Crimson Gold, that we featured last week. Yes. And, And again, like you said in your introduction... We have him enacting scenes from an unproduced screenplay using masking tape on a carpet to map out the layout of a house mm. that he would have used. Mm. You could go into the self-reflexivity and all, the, all of the layers that uh, are in this film, but to me it didn't feel emptily intellectual. No. Panahi's quite open about the fact that he doesn't actually know what he's making while he's making it. Yeah, and I think, I think the film was given also... Because of um, stuff outside the text of the film itself, I mean, even though it's, even if it's integrated into the film, um, just sort of the uh, automatic emotional appeal that a lot of the sequences have. Yeah. Uh, just in terms of like you know, waiting him waiting for to hear back from his lawyer, and it it, it, it sort of 
uh, removes some of the potential tedium of what this could have been, right? Yeah, it reframes what what would otherwise feel a little bit glib. Or... Yeah, it makes it feel almost desperate in a in a moving way, you know. Yes, and I think the key moment in this film, and the one that like supplies the the key image of this film for the posters, mm. is when his friend uh, Motomars makes a wry comment about their their situation when he says that when hairdressers get bored, they cut each other's hair. Yeah. During a scene in which these two filmmakers are filming each other yeah, yeah. Um, simultaneously, filming the other, filming the other. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think ultimately what we're just watching is someone's desire to express himself through his art, yeah. continuing despite the direst of circumstances. Mm. And I'm also quite moved by the fact that there's a lot of warmth and humour in this film, even his, as he's facing a potential like six-year jail sentence at least. Uh, a, a special um, pleasure of this film is the iguana. <laughs> yes, yes, it's a it's a welcome comic element. Yes. Especially when Iggy is tormenting Panahi. <laughs> also, also the dog, also funny. Uh, which I guess I should go into more detail where there's a sequence where um, a neighbor uh, tries to paw it off um, her dog onto Panahi and he immediately reacts by, because the dog is uh, terrible. <laughs> uh, he immediately uh, gives her back, gives it back. Very amusing sequence. So, uh, yeah, I think the balance of tones was really effective. Yeah. Like, there's obviously this pervading melancholy over the whole film. Yeah. But there's that element of humour and warmth that I really appreciated and that made you, like, really like Panahi and respect him even more. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, uh, this film made me really hungry at the beginning. <laughs> what is eating that breakfast? Looks looks like a good breakfast, I have to say. Hmm. Some jam and bread. Yeah, uh, I think I think I think this film, I find it to be uh, incredibly moving. Just in its its sheer, um, you know, resilient character, and I mean, again, as a political sort of <clears throat> almost like punkish move against the Iranian government, it, it it is really sort of a brave gesture. I think, you know, on one hand, I feel sort of hesitant to to praise the film just because of like the circumstances that surround it, but it is just such a fascinating move in itself that the film itself. Even though if it's uh, compelling, is almost incidental in a way, you know. Uh, I don't know. I, I especially find like the the ending of the film to be sort of strange and and, and moving too. It's almost like a hopeful ending in some way, you know. Mm. There's like possibility of vitality against the Iranian regime that comes through. Oh, basically, you really want to watch his other films he's made uh, post filmmaking ban. I mean, obviously, I guess like it, it's a matter of like you know um, Iran. Try, wanting to not seem, you know, dr- draconian, which is why he's allowed to still make films, presumably. But um, I also kind of like the idea of, of him just being like, I, I'm not going to make any more films. And he just immediately makes another film. And it's just like, oh, you darn Panahi, we'll get you next time. <laughs> so what is his current situation? Uh, he was under house arrest last I heard. Okay. But um, both Taxi and Three Faces take place outside of his apartment. So mm-hmm. I don't know what, um, uh, if he's just, you know, breaking the law by making those films, which is definitely possible, but, um, I don't, I don't know what, uh, his situation is. Did this make you curious to watch his other, some of his other films or are you tapped out of Panahi? What's left after this? Uh, he's made three films. Uh, he made Closed Curtain in 2013. He made 
Taxi in 2015. When Taxi came out, I was like, oh, that looks boring. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, Taxi won the Golden Barrel, have you know? Taxi looks like 10. It does look like 10 a little bit. But I wonder, I, I would like to see it. I, I would like to see all of his films, I think. Is there only two more, really, essentially? Yeah, and Three Faces, which was at Cannes last year. Oh, Three Faces, yeah. Next, box office. And movie news. Or burn, Hollywood burn. Burn, Hollywood burn. Uh, I can't believe I remember the name of the segment. Aren't you proud of me? Mm-hmm. Hollywood burn. That's right, mama. Hollywood burn. All right, you ready? Yep. Box office Box office Box office Number one at the box office is... In both countries, but we'll each say our respective countries on the count of three. Three, two, one. America equal... Ride like a girl. Abominable. What? I don't know. Sounds like some Australian film. Maybe it is. I've never actually heard of it. Uh, Abominable seems to be some sort of um, weird China-focused American animated film. As a little girl, Michelle Payne dreams the impossible, winning the Melbourne Cup. What's that? Horse racing's toughest two-mile race. God, I hate I hate movies like this. Yeah, me too. Sam Neill's in it. What if? What if? Wait, guess who it's directed by? Uh, Bruce Beardfordson. Nope, Rachel Griffiths. I don't know who it is. She's an actor. She was in Muriel, Muriel's Wedding, which I discussed last week, and also Six Feet Under. All right, so we've got our news ready. Uh, oh, no. Should we do a follow-up on the Spider-Man news that uh, I predicted weeks ago? No. Damn it. Let me, um, let my joy live. Me first or you first? Uh, I'll go first. Okay. So, Hugh, uh, surprising everyone, um, Stranger Things has gotten to season four. And... Is that, that's not movie news. <laughs> Uh, I'll choose a different one. Okay. Uh, okay, here we go. Ready? Mm-hmm. Okay, Alex Gibney's anti-Putin portrait, Citizen K, uh, gets an awards release from Free Solo Distributor. Uh, Greenwich Entertainment will release Citizen K in Los Angeles on November 22nd. Financed by Amazon, the film will hit streaming via Prime Video. That's it. Cool. What movie news have you brought to the, the table? Yeah, so this is uh, Kevin Smith on uh, Ben Affleck's God. cameo in Jane and Silent Bob reboot. <laughs> I got my friend back. <laughs> so there's a report that they that the previously close friends have been estranged for a while, but the, the role in this film that Ben Affleck is uh, returning for has uh, re-cemented their friendship or something, I don't know. They're back together. They're happy, he's happy, he's in his film. Yay, Ben is he, playing, back. is he playing his hero? He's playing the character from Chasing Amy, motherfucker. What's his Holden. name? Holden. Holden, yeah, that's right. Caulfield. <laughs> yeah, Holden Caulfield. <laughs> when do you think that film's going to get released in Australia? So it hits uh, theatres in America on October 15th, which is not far away. No. Will it even reach cinemas in Australia? Probably <laughs> <Yes>. not. <laughs> All right, uh, moving on to bonus features. Bonus features, bonus, bonus features, bonus features, bonus, bonus. 
Uh, I watched no films this week, and partly that was because we recorded less than a week ago, and I spent three full days editing the previous episode, <laughs> which was three hours long, and required an entirely overhauled musical theme. I had to work out how to play that Project A Plus Part 2 song, and then recreate it as a digital symphony. And you, you had to... You had to um... Uh, scour the uh, J.B. Kennedy archives. And, uh, yeah, and include Jamie Kennedy's audio. Are you gonna uh, buy Ad Astra on Blu-ray just so you can watch the um, J.B. Kennedy footage? Well, if you can confirm it's definitely on the Blu-ray, then I will. When I buy it? You should buy it. You actually want it. And then we could include the audio of his deleted scenes on the podcast. <laughs> I, will, I will buy it. I'll pre-order it right now. just to, to Yes. Well, I mean, I have to make sure that it has the deleted footage, or I'm not going to do it, but I would like to own Ad Astra. So what films did you watch this week, Hunter? Uh, I watched Tetsuo the Iron Man, uh, which is Shinya Tsukimoto's uh, debut film. It's like an hour long, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's pretty short. I, was, I enjoy uh, short films. Um, and, you know, it really shows sort of this homemade quality uh, that went into it. Um, and it's just this really moody, um, you know, cyberpunk film about a man who gets transported to a metal man. Uh, it has some really grotesque sequences, but uh, I think it has a really good soundtrack. It's a moments of pure sort of expressionist horror that really worked for me. Um, and then I watched John Frankenheimer's 1966 Rock Hudson masterpiece, Seconds, mm-hmm. uh, which is about this middle-aged beta male uh, who's... A friend sort of gets signs him up for this program that allows him to have sort of a second life. Um, he undergoes surgery and becomes, fakes his own death, becomes Rock Hudson, a uh, stud. Um, but he, is he able to escape his existential doubt? That's the question. Um, this film is a really appealingly um, cynical view of the American dream and of the emptiness of middle class life. Um, and I thought it was really appealing on those grounds. There's a great Rock Hudson performance. Uh, there's one scene where he is drunkenly stumbling around a party, which I think is amazing. <laughs> Incredibly well done. And I think this film is uh, moving and shocking. It has a, it has a, a great downbeat ending, um, and uh, it's almost insane to me that a studio made it, um, but it's really has some great cinematography um, by, um, what's his name? Uh, James Wong Howe, and it just has all these amazing shots, and has great uh, a great title sequence by uh, Saul Bass. It's just really expertly directed and conceived, and I think it's a really brilliant film, and I think you should watch it. But you would really like it. Uh, it sounded good, yeah. It has some, like, noir touches, too. I really, really like this film a lot. Uh, and then I watched one other film, which is I went back to the theaters to re-watch Ad Astra. Wow. And uh, Hugh, I, I really love this film. I think um, it's really confirmed to me that, uh, I don't know, I think Brad Pitt's really extraordinary in this film. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I will be honest, I did fall asleep <laughs> during the middle of it. <laughs> uh, but that was because I was really tired. But And that had the bizarre effect of making the second half of the film uh, even more emotional to me. And uh, I was basically sobbing by the end of it, so... Wow. Uh, I think this is a genius film. <laughs> mm. And uh, I think uh, whatever flaw, whatever nitpicks I had about the 
the um, voiceover or whatever last time. Uh, I do not have these problems anymore. So, At least during the bits that you were conscious for. Yeah. I only fell asleep for like three minutes. <laughs> it's a great film. And you're wrong. And I want you to uh, die with the knowledge of that. Cool. No bonus features from me this week, I'm sorry. But it is my turn to drag on forever. Drag on forever, I'll be fine. Drag on forever, anytime. Uh-huh. Uh, so drag on forever is the segment in which one of us chooses a topic and then we have to talk about it for five minutes. basically it starting now okay so the topic this week is uh the golden age of middling prestige television (laughs) Uh Uh, i can't really quantify any of this so this is just a feeling that i've developed um from some of the shows i've been watching but in the wake of the the prestige television revolution ushered in by HBO and others. I have noticed an increase in these one to two season shows that are you know, somewhat promising, but wind up being just fine. Your Rubicons. And it's a curious phenomenon that I just want to talk about briefly in this five minute segment. So a lot of these things are genuine creator driven shows that would normally not exist on network television and they assemble the ingredients of you know your modern day prestige show so the premises can be a bit more nebulous than you'd get away with on network television the pacing can be slower often there is a mystery or the hint of a mystery that ticks away in the background until the season finales bring them to the fore and they follow the american production model So the showrunner will be the credited author on the key episodes, um, usually the premiere and the finale and one or two others, and they will determine the trajectory of the show, they'll be the voice of the show. Um, But the ideas for each of the episodes will be mapped out in a writer's room they've assembled, and the showrunner assigns various writers uh, to write outlines and first drafts of the episodes that they're not writing personally, then these drafts, I believe, this is my understanding, the drafts are then reworked by the writer's room again and then finally by the showrunner to ensure a consistent tone across all the episodes. And the, whoever wrote, whoever actually pens the first draft gets the sole credit, even if the final script bears little relation to what they turned in. And that seems to be the standard American production model, which is quite different from the British production model because uh, the volume is much higher. So they, uh-huh. they can't really rely on one person to do all that work within any sort of manageable time frame. Whereas British shows are often like six episodes. Um, and... There's just been so many of these shows that I've watched that are just like, yeah, it was fine, but nothing that exceptional. Rubicon. Is that a show? 
Yes. Okay. Well, you can speak to that as well. But I will. I, it. I will say an example that I've just finished watching, which is Lodge Forty Nine. Mm. I actually wanted to watch that. Me too. That's why I watched it. Mm. Which uh, the title apparently alludes to the Thomas Pynchon novel, The Crying of Lot Forty Nine. Yeah, that's why I wanted to watch it. But it's sort of basically just one of these shows uh, that I'm speaking about that never quite meet. That basically they make you meet the show halfway instead of coming all the way to you with their quality, if that makes sense. So it's not quite good enough to reach you unless you make the effort to kind of want to like it. Mm. And I don't mean that it's a slow burn because, like, there are slow burn shows that just take a while to reach you, but if you stick with it, they will reach you. Whereas these sort of shows just sort of operate on a certain level where you really do have to make some sort of conscious effort to say, do I like the idea of this enough to go with it? And there's usually no, like, glaring flaws or anything that is particularly wrong with the shows per se. They're just fine, just fine. And I'm not exactly sure what the reason is. It just could be the fact that this type of television has taken off in such a way that there's just so much of it now that there's going to be a certain amount that's pretty mediocre or okay or just fine or whatever. Or it's something to do with the actual production model itself. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so Lodge 49 is fine. I quite like elements of it and I'd kind of be happy to watch it, but I wouldn't actually go out of my way to recommend it to anybody. Same with a show like Undone. Yeah, that's it. Project A plus that was Project A plus Project A plus that was Project A plus. Project A plus featuring the both of us. Project A plus now it's time to say thanks very much. Please stay in touch. Otherwise we might lose the will to fight. Then we'll close down our website. We're gonna go make another show. Now we have to say goodbye. Hope you get that dream job. Maybe meet a handsome guy. We pray to God that you'll find happiness before.